This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 10 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. Former U.S. Secretary of State George Shultz, who helped to end the Cold War, dies this week at the age of 100. The Netherlands have been hit by its first major snowstorm in a decade. The cold snap is a result of Storm Darcy. And over 12 million people in the U.K. have now had the first COVID jab. That's what's been keeping us on our toes this week in the world. On another track is talking to people that we can't meet with face-to-face, We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. And so if we can actually get you to record locally, then we have a backup, which is really good. And I'll get you to send that. Pass, and it's a nap, right? Want me to open, let voice recorder access my mic. Okay, I think it's done. That's the voice of my guest this week, Beverly Dietz of B. Dietz Consulting. She's preparing for her next chapter in life by developing her new website for her Play Outdoors magazine. Having been curious from an early age and always looking for the zest in life, she became the youngest faculty member at the age of 21 to be hired in the Ontario college system. As a director of learning and research into early childhood education, she's worked at seven colleges and three universities across Canada and even ventured to a man in Jordan in the Middle East for seven years. Risk-taking is part of our New Brunswick DNA. Beverly believes to be successful in life, you have to appreciate yourself first, do the best you can to fulfill your ambitions, but most importantly, as her mother instilled in her, give back to society and help the less fortunate. She looks at our Scottish and Irish ancestry to see where she's been, but most importantly, where she's going. I started first by asking Beverly about B. Dietz Consulting and what motivated her to start the company. I would describe myself as a curiosity creature. I'm an educator, I'm a researcher. Uh, as my brother likes to identify, I'm still the playgirl of the family. So based on that and my need for curiosity and stimulation, a number of years ago I started presenting at conferences and doing workshops. And then over time, the income tax became extremely high for me to pay. And as a result, I then started BDEATS Consulting. Uh, So it was really the uh, CRA that pushed me into formalize a corporation. And I've been very grateful, actually, to them for pushing me in that direction. That is a fantastic story. And, and it's funny when you talk about that, we're very much in the environment we're in at the moment with COVID. It's really stimulating people to have a reaction to the negativity of COVID and do something positive, isn't it? So what currently is the, the format of BDEATS Consultant? How do you go about facilitating what you do? 
Generally, it has been word of mouth and, uh, you know, appreciate that I am an educator and a researcher. So in my number of years in my career, that is reaching about 40 or maybe over 40 at this point in time, I've worked at seven colleges across Canada. I've been involved in uh, teaching at three universities in the Canadian landscape, and I've done a fair amount of international work. One of my joys has been working in the Middle East and in Europe. So combining those elements, the business really has been word of mouth. And just recently, actually, I've graduated in the the business format, not only to have the incorporation, but to have a website. And that's a big deal for me to have evolved the business to the point where we need to have a website. You know, it's interesting you talk about that because so many great professional people who've been working for maybe 10, 20, 30, even 40 years in business it's amazing how many people don't have a website. You know, it's a, you know, they might have a Facebook profile or a Twitter profile, which I know you've got, and they've kind of relied on that. But what do you think the motivation was to really get going on the website? What was that from a business point of view? Well, part of it has been some colleagues uh, that I have engaged and uh, had wonderful dialogue with. Uh, so that's been part of it to say, you know, you, we really need to make you visible. Uh, The second part is, as I think futuristically about my next chapter in life, I really do want to move from my current role in a college at some point, certainly not right away, but when I move to that next phase of life, I want to be able to continue uh, to give to society and to support educators. And particularly, I have a a real joy and appreciation for the work that educators do with young children. So whether it includes teachers in the school system or early childhood educators or individuals that are trying to make a difference for families. So that was a a key component for me to begin to say, you know, we we all have a number of chapters in, in our lives and I'm preparing for my next chapter whenever those pages will unfold. And, and this is a way in which I'm, I'm preparing. I love what you said there, you know, about giving back to society. And, you know, the current situation that we're in where we're kind of contained at home and we're doing everything via Zoom like we are today really kind of focuses the mind, doesn't it, about what the next chapter should be. And you were really very clear about that. Have you always been clear about your next stages in business as you've gone through life? Because you've traveled a lot and you've seemed to have kind of planned out that life of yours really well. Uh, or is that just all smoke and mirrors? No, it's not smoke and mirrors. Uh, I've been very intentional. So um, when I look at my career, I made a conscious effort at the onset and, you know, appreciate that I became a faculty member in a college at the age of 21. I was the youngest faculty member ever hired in the Ontario system. And at that time, you know, you think 21, well, that's quite young. And indeed it was. I, I do pity the poor students that I had initially. However, I did make a conscious effort that I would only stay in a role for seven to 12 years. That would be the maximum. And uh, my intent was always to move from one institution to another after 12 years. And my reason for that is because I wanted growth 
and I wanted opportunities to continue to advance my career. And sometimes I fear that individuals will stay in the same position for 20, 30 years. And I'm not sure how healthy that would be for me personally. As I identified earlier, I'm a very curious person and I need stimulation. As I look at that, I put my career in seven to 12 year chunks and Generally, I have looked at the seven years as a time to say, okay, you need to begin to prepare for your next chapter. And the college that I'm working in right now, I have been there seven years. So, you know, I'm looking at that window seven to 12 to say, soon you have to have the next chapter uh, ready to embark on. So kind of what gave you that confidence? Do you have a family background in the military? Because that's where I come from. I was a military brat when I was a kid. So we moved every three to four years. What was your background as a, as a child? No, mine is, is very different, uh, Dave. I come from a family of eight children. Uh, we lived in a very rural part of New Brunswick. In fact, uh, my siblings still live there. I am the only one that has ventured out of New Brunswick for any period of time. I was the youngest daughter, child number seven. We had a very stable home life from the perspective of living in the the same home. But what I discovered very early in my life is that I did not want to live in a rural community where my family lived. And it wasn't because I don't love my family. I I dearly, dearly uh, love my family, but I needed different stimulation um, from my my brothers and sisters. And so I was the first generation to leave home and attend post-secondary education. I was the first daughter to graduate from college, then, of course, university. And as I examined my university career. I engaged in three degrees, uh, concluding with my PhD. So it's been a, you know, it's my brothers and sisters have influenced me very, very much as did my, my mom and dad. But I desperately wanted that zest for life and adventure. And fortunately, I was strong willed enough and you know what I what I didn't articulate earlier is that uh, we were not a wealthy family. We were I would consider us a, a poor family from a financial perspective, but a rich family in how our brothers and sisters and mom and dad lived. Uh, we're very connected to one another, and we've always identified that we must stick together as, as a family. It's quite funny, actually, when I'm with my brothers and sisters, often they shake their heads to say, like, you must have come from a different, a different stock. And uh, they, they have great laughter about my adventures in life. Tell me a little bit about mum and dad. You know, where did the family originally come from? Have you ever traced the history? I'm, I'm so intrigued by this. Originally, they were Scottish-Irish, or not they, but uh, their families. My dad actually grew up on the property of one of the first individuals from Scotland to receive land from uh, the province of New Brunswick. And that particular homestead is the home of my brother uh, right now. So from a historical perspective, uh, we're, we're very connected to, to our roots. My maiden name is Arthur's. For many years, we have had 
um, family reunions to bring the Arthur's family from North America together. And we were doing those uh, every five years as we get older, of course, we we have reduced those family reunions. But uh, again, we we look at our culture, we look at where we have been and where we are going as a family and, and certainly from a societal perspective. What is it? And, you know, these were one of the key pieces that uh, my mother particularly instilled in us to be sure that when you are successful, whatever successful is, that you give back to society. And she certainly never thought that money meant that you were successful. It was successful in the joys of life, successful in being able to connect with people and to provide opportunities for less fortunate to have something that will offer them a bit of joy, even if it is for 10 minutes. And, you know, so that may mean if I can give people some food uh, that they may not have, then I have a duty to do that. You know, it's quite interesting when I reflect because my mother was very ill for for many years of my childhood, but she left us with some very key messages. And, you know, I'll just go on a little side note uh, of my mother. She suggested that all of her children learn keyboarding skills or, you know, in those days it was uh, typing because she felt that no matter what happened in life, we would be able to get jobs as, in those days, stenographers. We would be able to, if we could type, we would be able to give to society. Uh, So many of her children have incredible keyboard skills. And, you know, when you think about that, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, that was very progressive. So, you know, I always appreciate that that was one of the core messages that she shared with us. The other piece that's important for for our family, um, in fact, were our extended um, families from the perspective of our aunts and uncles and our cousins. They were very much part of our family and who we are. And to this day, we are very close as cousins. You know, that's really great to hear because you made a really nice comment earlier on. We weren't rich in terms of financially rich, but in terms of the emotional support and the empathy and, and the support from family, that was rich. And that's really got kind of what gave you that great foundation to spring from. And your mum sounded like a very ahead of her time. She really kind of thought, though I'm going to set my kids up for success they'll always have a fallback situation so get your stenography or your typing and you can always have that skill in the future and what a forward-thinking mum eh amazing yeah the other key piece that she uh, instilled in her daughters and appreciate she had four daughters and she always suggested that we have enough money in a private bank account uh, for two months rent should we be in a relationship and we need to leave quickly that we would have two months rent and you know I thought that that again was very progressive not that she ever ever recommend it that you think about separation and divorce because she you know she really believed in the family but she also wanted to ensure that we knew how to protect ourselves as women listening to that description of mum right 
I can see how that's woven the threads into you as a personality, you know, and how your interest in helping people and especially young people. How important is early childhood development? You did mention it earlier on. Tell me a little bit about that. So I appreciate that when I, and and again, it goes back to my childhood, I think, that had a, a significant impact on why I'm interested in early childhood We lived in a rural community, uh, so we only had our brothers and sisters and our cousins to play with, and I desperately wanted other children to play with. I I wanted to be with the children across the ferry boat. We had to take a ferry boat from uh, the peninsula to the, the landing. And what I realized as I studied early childhood, it's that whole notion of social and emotional development and how had I had different experiences, how it may have formed me to be a different person. So for example, I desperately wanted to learn how to play a musical instrument. I desperately wanted to learn how to dance. But for a number of reasons, those types of experiences were not able to be extended to me. So as I look at children today, I say, what is it we can do in the environment uh, that will support children in having a holistic approach on to their development? Now, what I did have in my childhood was lots of outdoor play. And, you know, that that is a key interest in my research and in my education. Because eight children, I'm sure my mother just wanted to get us out the door at seven o'clock when we woke up and brought us in. Actually, many a day she would put lunch out on what we called a stoop and we would eat outdoors with our dirty hands and then go back to play. And so those key components, the importance of play, experiential learning, that sense of curiosity that I spoke of earlier is vital for children. And so I've drawn upon some of the key learnings from my childhood and then amalgamated those with my observations, my research and uh the the actual experiential components that I've had working with children. And I truly am a strong believer that the first seven years of a child's life is the framework for their future journey. And as a result of that, I want to provide educators that influence children with the very best knowledge, skills, and abilities to be able to facilitate optimal learning environments and experience for and with children. That's a really interesting point you make about that first seven years because, and again, you'll have to excuse my ignorance of the subject because I'm not really an expert in it, but you know, I've seen documentaries where children don't get stimulation in that first seven years. They may not get love, they may not get nurturing, and it really has an adverse effect. What, what are the serious consequences of some of that in your experience? Many, many consequences. So, you know, the key piece that we're seeing right now is uh, the mental illness amongst children, the number of children that have depression, the number of children that are in environments that are not conducive to their learning styles. You know, so some children really need to have environments where they are the decision makers and they can follow their desire to learn. And the moment we put roadblocks up, then that causes incredible impact for the children. And again, I'll go back to my childhood, whereby I had a grade one teacher, an art teacher, actually, and he came in on a weekly basis and he would give us these art lessons. And he insisted 
that I color within the lines of whatever the coloring book was. And I couldn't do it. I was a young child in grade one, and I hadn't developed that fine motor skill. And he stood over me, and he was absolutely going to make me color within the lines. So when I look at how I support children in their art and their creativity, I want it to be open-ended because, of course, that's what the research says is best to actually offer children the options for their creative talents to, to be explored. But it also goes back to those life experiences. So when we work with children, we need to combine our life experiences with the research. And it always must be evidence-based to really make sense of how we offer programs, offer experiences for and with children. How much impact do you think, number one, parents and electronics and our current electronic environment is really having on the life of children? Oh, it's having significant impact. So the first is uh, we know that children are having visual uh, issues right now. We have more children between the ages of 8 and 12 requiring uh, prescriptive glasses now than we ever did before. And you know the research is telling us it's because the children are, are screen children. The other key piece, and the, the research continues to evolve, is how technology is changing how children's brains are developing and the what we call the wiring of the brains. So we really need to understand that For adults, we don't see it, but for children, because their brains aren't developed, in order for them to focus on the screen, it's much like wires just hitting back and forth, and and the children need to be able to refocus that stimulation so that they are able to use the technology. There are some parts of technology that offer children some great experiences. So, for example, when I look at children in the outdoor environment, It's very important for children to have access to technology so that they can capture the experiences that they've had. We also want children to use technology in examining the outdoor environment that they are in because those observation skills and being able to document those observations that they are making, it increases their awareness to their environment and hence environmental sustainability. And families are the most significant influencers of children. So, you know, we we all know that uh, sometimes we will hear children sounding just like the adults. You know, that that's an influence. So if families, for example, are very much focused on academics as opposed to holistic development, uh, looking at ways in which children learn, not understanding the importance of experiential learning and how experiential learning and play fit with later academic skills and insist that early childhood programs do worksheets or, you know, that the children must learn their ABCs and all of those key pieces. That is going to have an impact on children's development from a social, emotional, physical, cognitive component. So we really need to support families in understanding child development and ways in which the environments influence the children's development. 
Now, I'm not faulting families because, you know, children don't come with a manual. and uh, No, they don't. <laughs> they don't come with a manual, and every little munchkin will be different and require very different needs. So, you know, it, it's not when you can turn to page 23 and, and figure out this is what I should be doing. But there are some core characteristics that are important. And that whole notion of what we say child-led with adult facilitation, that will support children in having the very best start uh, to their, their development. So I'm intrigued by something, and I think you kind of hinted at it there, was that there is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, we as human beings love structure, and I think when we look at our education, certainly from my point of view, going back to the 1960s and 70s, you know, we learned our times table wrote, we learned our letters wrote, you know, in other words, everything was repetition. And for us in many ways, and I'm just saying from my personal viewpoint, that was very reassuring. There was a structure there. You learn in that structure and you achieved something at the end of that. And as young children, that was really good. And then we had art and we had outside play and water play and sand play and all that. And and, and when I look back at my childhood, very structured, it was an army life. And every two or three years I moved, but everywhere I went, there was the same type of structure. And for me, that was very reassuring as a child. Is that sort of structure still there now in the environments that we create for children now? And how important is that rote structure in your opinion? And children need to have some structure and predictability, for sure. Uh, but when we look at, and, and I'll give you an example, uh, actually from one of my colleagues in Alberta uh, just recently, when we think about teaching children about math, counting to one to ten, we can't do it on a screen. Children need to touch objects. They need to be able to see what does a pile of 10 things look like versus one thing. And you can't, you know, support the children in doing this rote counting, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yes, children can do that. And children, uh, families will think, oh, my child is really bright because he or she can count to 10. But they don't have any knowledge of what that means. They just know if they count from 1 to 10, they get a positive reaction. Uh, so, you know, there has to be some structure. Absolutely. Um, but we really need to identify what's the benefit of rote learning. Are there other ways in which you could have learned that? And I appreciate that years ago in the school system, it was all rote learning. And now what we're trying to do is support educators in looking at other ways so that children become critical thinkers and problem solvers. And that's when we look at the 21st century skills that children require. It's being able to work in teams, it's being able to communicate amongst a group of children, it's being able to have that empathetic approach, it's being able to look at a problem and examine it from a variety of ways, so that ideation and then that problem solving. We don't do that if we have a curriculum in which children have to engage in rote learning to gain skills. There are some aspects that children require repetition and that repetition will move them to uh, learning uh, but not necessarily having to go home with the sheet of paper here you have to memorize the timetables I think there are better ways in which we can support children in gaining those concepts you're halfway through listening to on another track with me David Wilson my guest this week is Beverly Dietz of B Dietz Consulting 
Next, I wanted to ask Beverly about her time as Beverly Arthurs and what was her ambitions in life. Also, if somebody was embarking on a career in early childhood learning and development, what would be her roadmap for that type of career? As Beverly Arthurs, I'm sure at 11, 12, 13, you hadn't decided to go into this type of career, or had you? Tell me a little bit of back history of how you kind of got the idea that, oh, this is what I'm going to do at college and this is the job that I'm going to do. So I always had a passion for children, recognizing that from the age of 11, I was the neighborhood babysitter. And, you know, that was really important to me from the perspective of acquiring some spending money. I just always knew that children would be part of whatever I did. Now, when I became a Canadian nanny, um, I assumed that I was going to be traveling the world with rich families. And after uh, three years of working with well-to-do families, uh, I realized that wasn't the life for me. And, you know, I assumed that every well-to-do family had great home lives for the children. And I soon recognized that that wasn't necessarily so. Um, And then I had an opportunity to teach, as I articulated earlier, at a college. And that's when I realized that I could really make a difference. So from there, I engaged in working with children in a preschool program. I worked in an after-school program. And then I was very fortunate to work with the province of New Brunswick, actually, and uh, develop the first early childhood education program for their college system. So once I started within the college system, I had a vision that my career would always be in the college system. And indeed, it has been excluding three years when I decided that I wanted to become a university professor because, and it's interesting because I've spent a fair amount of my career in both teaching and administration. So I've been, you know, directors of learning and and teaching, directors of uh, learning and applied research, directors of academic innovation, you know, all all of those pieces. I was a, a regional dean as well. And at that point, uh, I had faculty that identified, well, you don't know what it's like to teach in the university. You've only taught in the college. Well, I had taught a number of courses in the university, but, you know, I wasn't one of those tenure track professors. So I thought, I'm just going to take a a jot over here and, and engage in that experience. And I did. I was very fortunate to acquire a tenure track position at a university in Nova Scotia and soon realized that that environment was not conducive to my personality and the way in which I teach and the way in which I connect with students. So, you know, it's it was a, a great learning experience. I have always, even though I have been in administrative positions, I have always identified to my supervisors, usually at a VP level, that whatever my position is, my passion is to work with early childhood environments and with adults that influence children. So my spare time, my leisure time is strictly devoted to to that agenda. Between working in my garden and connecting with nature and then engaging with early childhood programs, uh, that really facilitates me being the whole person that I want to be. Superb. 
If um, somebody was embarking on the possibility of the type of career that you've had, what would you kind of recommend them? You know, if they're starting off, they're kind of high school and they're looking to go and do a university degree or they're maybe they're looking to get experience in the real world. I mean, what would be your recommendations to them to follow the type of career that you did? Uh, so for me, it was really important for me to start my education in a college environment. And again, you know, that that's an interesting piece for many families. They would not want that. They would um, be positioning their child to go s- straight to university. The college environment was good for me because it was smaller classes. I was a very shy child coming out of rural New Brunswick and I left New Brunswick, you know, and flew to Ontario the first time on a aircraft to engage in a college environment. And uh, because I had small classes and I had the opportunity to connect with the professors, I was able to gain success. And then from there, I worked in a variety of early childhood programs to give me that experience and to give me that sense of what I wanted to do and and build my career. From there, as I was working in the field, I went to university. And that was important because I had the experiential piece to help me work through the theoretical components. And I had the theory to draw upon from my college environment. I would also say that you want to take risks and you're going to have some mistakes and you're going to have some failures. And that's quite okay. As long as you have the ability to say, this isn't working for me and I need to reframe what I am going to do. So again, I'm, I'm very open to the fact that I went from one college to another college at one point in time in my career, and it was not a good fit for me. I didn't feel comfortable in the community. I didn't feel comfortable in the position. And I probably knew that within four months of being in the position. And I had a choice, but over a period of time, after a three-year time frame, I knew that it wasn't good for me or for the institution. Uh, So I had to take a risk and say, I have to do something different. And it is that risk-taking and being able to calculate that risk-taking and know when it is good to say, I'm ready to move. And, you know, uh, fortunately, I have a very flexible husband because, you know, I moved him from Ontario, where his family was, to New Brunswick, then moved him back from New Brunswick back to Ontario then took him to Nova Scotia, then brought him out west. And, uh, you know, you have to have a strong partnership to to be able to do that. I have been very fortunate in my life, both from the perspective of having that support and also having the freedom to explore and to build my career. So you really need to be clear on how as partners, if you have a partner, how you're going to work this and how to actually take those opportunities and embrace them and know that some of them aren't going to be the best decision that you've made but don't beat yourself up about that say I learned so what are the lessons I learned and now how do I move on I just want to ask you a quick question Um, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken in your life 
Oh, wow. That, that is a, I think there's been two risks, uh, two big risks. So the first was, uh, and this is how naive I am about geography. So, you know, I have to tell you that one of the benefits of my partner is that he can tell you where every country is and whatever. I can't necessarily do that. Um, but I was actually, uh, unwell for a period of time and I was in a hospital in Oakville, Ontario, and uh, but working in New Brunswick. And uh, the dean at the time telephoned me and he said, Beverly, we've had a request for you to uh, start up a project in Amman, Jordan. And uh, do you think once you get out of hospital that you would like to, to do that? And again, it was to start early childhood and work with women in a women's college to advance the women's college. So I said, oh, absolutely, I'm in. I'm absolutely in. Well, I didn't know where Jordan was, had no idea. So um, I contacted one of my friends that was very, very sweet to bring me tea every night. And I said, could you bring me an atlas? So (laughs) she brings me an atlas and I say, oh, Jordan. Okay, a a man, Jordan. Oh, the Middle East. And I said, well, you know, I made a commitment and off I went and I worked there for uh, off and on for seven years. And it it was just a highlight, but I didn't know anything about the culture. I didn't know anything about the, the food. I didn't know, you know, how to particularly act in that society. I didn't know how to facilitate. I was taking a a group of colleagues to work with me. I didn't know how to facilitate and support uh, them, but uh, it was just a fabulous experience. And then I think the second risk is that when I realized that I wanted to move from the university environment, I had an opportunity to move to British Columbia. So, you know, you know how it works. You get flown in for an interview. You look around in the, you know, couple of hours that you have, although appreciate I flew in to the area in the dark. The next day had a full day of interviews, then went back to my hotel room, then flew out again. But there was something intriguing when the president of the college that I work at telephoned me. And it was that telephone call that I said, Peter, you know, we've never lived West. And I think we we better take this opportunity. So we moved to BC. I had literally been in the community in the dark. Peter had never been there. And as we're driving in from the airport, uh, as many routes from the airport look, it's not the best looking environment. And all the way I could feel Peter's tension building. And it was a great risk, but it's one that I am ever so grateful for. So, you know, again, it's just just having the guts to say, we're going to try it. We've never tried it. Let's try it and see if it doesn't work out then we'll build another plan. I know that you've certainly done or been involved with some books, but also were you involved in toys or a toy store or something? Or is that, you know, urban myth? Oh, no, that that's the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So when I was a faculty member in New Brunswick, it was very difficult to get educational materials. So similar to setting up BDS Consulting, I recognized that there was a gap. So my husband and I opened up toy stores in the Maritimes. We had educational 
materials. So, you know, the the nice materials such as Brio trains at the time and um, many European pieces of apparatus for and with children. Uh, it was just a great, great experience. Now, we didn't become rich uh, on that adventure um, because I was also a faculty member and often when we acquired materials at the store I thought oh the students at the college should really be exposed to these so I would go in late at night when P Peter wasn't there and I would snatch inventory uh, so you know he would come home and say oh like inventory is missing oh really yeah is it this this and this that is missing but um, it was a great adventure for us and again it connected families and it provided families with opportunities to um, give their children great experiences and you know again recognizing that not all families could support that type of apparatus for and with their children we used to make up kits families would come in and borrow the kits uh, so that their children could have those experiences as well uh, so that was a, a giving back to society that that we did well that's a, almost a forerunner of the good old-fashioned toy library isn't it you know the idea it was, yes, it was at the store. And I love it. we had lots of, we used to call it penny candy. Uh, they would be penny toys, you know, so children could come in and buy something for five and 10 cents. And that made them feel really, really good. And then they'd get their, their bucket of toys. What about books? So I, I think you've been involved in quite a few books. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, so again, one of the gutsy things I did was write a textbook in uh, 2006 on my own. Never, ever written a textbook, but I knew that there was a need in Canada for early childhood textbooks and particular textbooks that had something to do with outdoor play. Uh, so I moved in that adventure and then the publishing company asked me to write a second and a third and a fourth and then I've done other publications as well. And as part of my research agenda, I write significantly to have peer-reviewed articles published so that I can offer opportunities to disseminate the knowledge that I've gained from the research and influence other researchers and educators specific to adult education and early childhood education. Actually, that's a fantastic segue. You couldn't have done it more naturally. I mean, what's really your next chapter in the Beverly Eats Consulting world then? Where are you going next? Oh, well, my next is to publish a magazine. And that's a very exciting piece for me because I've wanted to do this for many, many years. I began by writing a newsletter. Those were great, but I really want to publish a magazine. So part of COVID-19 in looking at my business, actually, because it was not doing well, I thought, what is it I can do? And I do have a colleague that I work closely with, Christina Pickles in Alberta. And I was speaking with her one night over a glass of wine. And I said, this is what I want to do. We've gathered some like-minded people that are risk takers that are risk taking with me and March 21st we hope to uh, have the first publication of Outdoor Play. Uh, so it's very very exciting for me. We have authors from across Canada contributing to the magazine and uh, we really believe that it will be one that 
those working with young children, directors of early childhood centres, probably early childhood students will benefit a great deal from. Correct me if I'm wrong, you just about launched your website, is that correct, with all the information? That is correct. I have just launched it. So it's very exciting as well for that to be launched. And on that website, you will see the type of consulting work I do, the advertisement for the, the magazine, and uh, other elements. There are blogs on there. So, you know, I really hope that the the website combined with the magazine will offer additional support to educators. And I think you just alluded to it. There, there is an opportunity if there's people who are interested in and supporting the magazine, they can do that through your website or contact you directly. Is that, that correct? That is correct. Great. So could you just give us the website address, if you don't mind? Do you have that to hand? I have it right here on a piece of paper, playoutdoorsmagazine.ca. Oh, fantastic. And if anybody wanted to get a hold of you, what's the best way of getting a hold of you? Go to the website and uh, there is a place where uh, they can connect with me. Well, listen, I wish you the best of luck with that. I've got one more question to ask you before we finish. If, um, if you're 18 years old again, what would you tell yourself? Uh, I would probably identify that I want to be a risk taker. I want to live life as a curious individual and to follow your dreams. And, you know, it may mean that you start a career. You're going to have seven careers in your life and be open to that. And, you know, really appreciate the gifts of life and do the best that you can to fulfill yourself appreciate yourself and then give back to society. And if you can do that in no matter what career you choose, you will be a successful individual in life. There you are. I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, Beverly Dietz, thank you so much for your time today. It's been much appreciated. Thank you. A pleasure. You've been listening to On Another Track with David Wilson. My guest this week was Beverly Dietz of B. Dietz Consulting. Inspiring those who play a key role in shaping the first five years of a child's life. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in the series. Just look out for On Another Track with David Wilson on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.